Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Two Minute Hate Book Club. Uh, this week, we're doing something a little different. Uh, an old IRL friend of mine, Ian, who uh, has a lot of experience in politics and is very interested in RFK, wanted to do RFK Jr.'s book, uh, The Real Anthony Felchi, Fauci, Fauci, not Felchi. Uh, so we discussed that book, but honestly, a lot of the discussion just ends up being about uh, RFK himself, why he's sort of an interesting person, and how he could be very disruptive uh, to the political cycle, uh, especially if you're you're rooting for Trump as I am. So, yeah, enjoy this episode. We, we are, you know, launching into the undiscussable, so it's, uh, I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. So, welcome everyone to the Two Minute Hate Book Club podcast. Uh, for those very few people who have listened to this podcast for a long time, before it was a book club, uh, and when it was sort of a random random gab fest, you may recognize Ian's voice, but he's uh, he's an old friend of mine. And Ian, you may uh, you may not know this, but at least for the book club part of the podcast, you know, I've I've mainly only had you know right wing freakazoids on to discuss various. Uh, right-wing conspiracy theory so you're you're a little bit of a you'll be a breath of fresh air for some and an outrage for others i'm sure but we're going to talk about rfk jr's book the real anthony fauci yeah well thanks for having me i mean i uh spent the vast majority of my career in democratic politics but um you know i was after the 2020 cycle was blacklisted by all the party committees um for doing, you know, way, uh, what, you know, way more than what, you know, Robert F. Kennedy has done against the party. And uh, I don't know, I'm really excited to have this conversation, both this, you know, I'm glad that we both had the opportunity to read the book, but also that it's a fortuitous time to have the conversation, just given the, the state of the campaign and some of the stuff that you and I have talked offline about, about how this is shaping up with, you know, next week, um, he'll be announcing an independent campaign for president, which I think is something that um, is going to have a, a much bigger effect on the election than than a lot of people think. Well, yeah, I, I sort of wanted to start talking about some of the political background and we'll definitely get into the book. Um, but is it fair to say, I mean, you just gave some context there that sort of like your maybe your position or relationship with like you know, general Democrat party politics has changed a little. But I think of you as someone who's always been interested in, like, outsider Democrats, uh, people who had, like, a weird or heterodox, uh, you know, interaction with sort of, like, the mainstream party and always been interested in these these outsider candidates. So is that – do you think that is the source of your interest in RFK or is it something else? No, I mean, I think like like most people brought up in, you know, polite society, um, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was a joke. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, you and I've talked about COVID policy and that sort of the way that um, both parties handled COVID, but particularly what sort of the mainstream Democratic position on COVID in the erosion of our civil liberties since 2020 um, and the attack on science in general, particularly when it comes to vaccines uh, for COVID, that 
you know, led me to actually pick up this book, which, you know, I realized, um, you know, a million other Americans at least had bought this book um, and read the real Anthony Fauci, but, but it was never listed anywhere. Now, I mean, it was the best-selling book of 2021 by numbers, but it's very hard to find anyone that will, that will, that will do that because people wouldn't review it. Uh, people wouldn't show it. You know, this was immediately after COVID in 2020 when he was banned from, uh, you know, from Instagram. He, when he was banned from the internet, essentially, uh, for, for saying things about the virus, some of which weren't true, some of which were true, and some of which we don't know are true. But, um, you know, him sort of as like the flashpoint for saying the things that aren't the one true opinion getting um, eliminated from public conversation was something that interests me. And, and, you know, I I think Robert F. Kennedy is somebody who there aren't that many, like when you hear about people who come from the fringe, even politically, you, you, you listen to somebody like, you know, it's hard to make a comparison, but somebody like Ron Paul really running from the outside. If you listen to him during a debate or something, you, you can see why most people listen to him. Oh, this guy is a lunatic. But, but with, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I feel like the more people listen to him, the less they think he's he's a lunatic. The more sense that he seems to make, the more confusing it is that uh, the things that he, he is saying are not just disagreed with, but just not even allowed to be discussed. So, I don't know, there's a lot there, but... Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I mean, you know my political, uh, like, leaning, so I'm... I, I'm almost driven to make a defense of Ron Paul here, but I'll just let your your slander of the good Dr. Paul go. But I know I know what you're saying. So sorry, um, just to be clear, I don't want to I, I don't want to interrupt. But it's actually not so much just the things that he said, but the way that he there's nothing clowny about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the way that he speaks. You know? Sure. Okay. I do think one thing that's interesting, and and we can get into it with the book, is like. When RFK Jr. gives uh, interviews, I think he's pretty good at being very forthcoming about when we just don't have information and making – like limiting his outrageous claims to – or in other words, he'll he'll only sort of make the claims he can back up the most – and then when it gets into more controversial territory, he'll be like, well, we don't know. And, you know, the experts shouldn't say we know if we don't know. But in the book, he goes a lot further than that. So I actually was struck by the fact – and this is sort of the inverse of how people normally do it, right? Like a lot of people, their written stuff is really solid, really well-researched. And then in public, they're sort of out of pocket. But he's – after reading the book, I sort of concluded he's kind of the opposite of that. And it made me wonder – if there were other people involved in the writing of this book, because I feel like the things the things I see him say about COVID in public are pretty reasonable. But then there's like sort of as you described in the book, there's some things that are reasonable and, and some things that are that are less so. Well, you know, the, the book is 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 a journey, you know, the, the first part <laughs> going into COVID in which the, the stuff that that is in there about it and the data and what happened and in the timeline and the studies on the vaccine um, and the, you know, repression and, and, and the omission of, and then just repression of data, the way it was marketed, that stuff um, to me is, it is this part of the book is largely just like a history that nobody had written. There's, I find it hard even for somebody who totally agree disagrees with, 
his position on the vaccine, like the history of what happened. Um, I don't see all the, all that much that's in there that, that's controversial. Um, it just seems to be the things that had happened. And then the interpretation, the interpretations of the data um, are, are another thing, but um, yeah, I, I'll just piggyback on that, which is saying like, there are many things in this book that frustrated me, many things that confused me, but by far the most valuable thing in the book, and just to mention it again, the, the book we're talking about is The Real Anthony Fauci by RFK Jr., which uh, you could say it's a book about COVID, but it also just sort of provides a professional history of this guy, Anthony Fauci, and his... Uh, ascendance through the public health ranks. And I think what I found most gratifying and most interesting in the book is that RFK sort of is providing a sample case of a phenomenon that I think is true, which is like if you're a technocrat in one of these fields where both the public and the average member of Congress is going to have a hard time tracking like the technical details of what you're doing you can actually make U.S. policy like pretty much single-handedly. And if you're like a clever, uh, you know, if you're a clever bureaucrat, you can also sort of seed misinformation or cloud uh, the trail of what you're doing. And I think there's even a read, there's a certain way you could read the book that's like, what's really disturbing is not so much the, the character, individual actions of Fauci, but the fact that, like, you know, if you're the head of, of one of these big institutes or you're at the head of some agency, this is just what you would be bound to do. Because, like, prosecuting, you know, complicated scientific arguments, either in the public or, you know, in a congressional hearing, it's not really practical. And probably what any smart person in that position is going to do is going to be like, well, I know what should actually happen and then I'll, I'll sort of seed a certain narrative to the public and I'll just try to implement. And I think you can see that as like really anti-democratic and scary even without seeing Fauci as like a, a personally evil individual, which, you know, that's just a question I don't really care about. But obviously RFK does also see him as like a monumentally evil figure. Yeah, uh I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see. I mean, I think what, what when it comes to the actual like baggage about Fauci and the way that he's conducted himself financially, I don't think we'll have the answers to what um, is alluded to in the book in terms of his him being conflicted, you know, taking royalties and money from different pharma- pharmaceutical companies on on drugs for, for which he essentially oversaw the uh, the approval for. We won't know that until the Republicans are in, are are in control of government and they they look and get the answers that he's not giving. So I don't really know. I I suspect you know the questions that he's refusing to give answers to are ones that if you weren't doing something really wrong, you'd probably be really happy to present the answers to. Um, well, right. So that that specific thing is slightly I mean, there, there are there is another story in this book than the one I just talked about, which is sort of like the the ongoing conspiracy or semi conspiracy between pharma and public health, where there's various ways that people can get money. One is in royalties, I guess, for what do they get the royalties for? It's if they participate in research on the development of a vaccine or right. They, 
Okay. Uh, and and then they also go on to oversee it, and and then the royalties go on um, in perpetuity. Not just you know, well, I I I think it's like 180 something million a year has been revealed through these FOIA requests that came from Senate Republicans to NIH employees. Uh, it's like I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of you, but I think it's a couple hundred employees at 180 million dollars a year in royalties that go out, and that's through 2020. So not even including uh, these new drugs, and the royalties are in are in perpetuity. And I didn't understand that in perpetuity actually doesn't mean when Anthony, let's say Anthony Fauci's getting some of these royalties, actually doesn't end when he dies, and it doesn't end when his kids die, and it doesn't end when his kids' kids die. It never ends. It's actually perpetual, so it's it's um, it, it's it's a lot of money up front every year, and that's not to say all of it's nefarious, but there certainly should be some sort of disclosure between people who are overseeing the licensing of these drugs and granting manufacturing permits and all of this stuff. There, there's got to be um, the, the and the fact that on the on the COVID vaccine oversight board that there's no disclosure at all as to whether they're getting royalties. Um, from the drugs that they are uh, approving um, just seems like an incredible lack of transparency, Um, like a comical lack of transparency that there really is no excuse for and could be readily um, disproven if if NIH under Fauci's leadership, which is not there anymore, was willing to provide this information. But literally their answer is we don't have to. So we're so we're not going to. it's concerning, but I, I mean, I think the, the the thing that I got after after reading at least the first part of the book, which is probably worth getting into, is when you look at the numbers about the COVID vaccine and where we are now. You know, when you see that this, and I was all in favor. I, I got vaccinated as early as I could. I, uh, but you know, like a lot of people, sort of saw saw what ended up happening with these. But but at this point, when the new studies come out. It's every single one. Like if you're a parent and I'm not a parent, but if you're a parent um, and are are eager to get one of these shots into a child under the 18 under 18 years old, you have to kind of have your head examined at this point because it, because it doesn't make any sense. Um, there is no um, there is no risk of hospitalization and death for for covid for this group, especially at this point. And there is an increased risk, particularly among young men, of uh, myocarditis from, you know, one in two in uh, a million to at least uh, uh, 80 in a million. And that, that's true sort of everywhere. So reducing a risk from zero to zero seems like not something that's it's good to do. And I, I looked before this, before we were talking today, I was looking into like what the answer is for that. Like why hasn't the data for children been been shared with people and, you know, is left out of the last uh, recommendation um, from NIH and from, from CDC about what the numbers were when it came to uh, uh, children's risk and reducing hospitalization and death and basically came down to like, well, they produce antibodies, right? And and that was the proof of the efficacy, but, you know, producing antibodies isn't necessarily efficacious, especially if, you know, uh, if the antibodies you're producing are preventing you from catching a disease that's that's not going to harm you and where natural immunity is going to be better for you anyways. But the best argument against that that I could come to was an interview I saw with Dr. Fauci when he said, well, what people don't tell you about that is that the risk of you getting COVID when you're younger, the risk of getting myocarditis from a COVID infection is much higher 
than getting it as a vaccine reaction. Um, it's much greater than, than, than 80 in a million. So of course you should, you should get the vaccine. And initially I was like, Ian, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I was like, wait a minute, just like everything else with this guy and with this public health infrastructure, like getting the COVID shot doesn't stop you from getting COVID at all. Not even a little bit. And so really what that means is he's saying, well, take the risk of the myocarditis by giving it to your teenage son or your 10 year old son. And then even though it won't stop you from getting COVID, if he gets COVID, he also has that risk. Like that's not a reason to take the vaccine. It's just nonsense. And there's nothing, I I can't come up with a compelling case as to why it should even be marketed to, to under 18s. The rest of the world isn't doing this. In the EU, you don't give these shots to, 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 to children anymore. Um, and yet here, it's still encouraged five and over, I think it is, go get this booster shot. And like, what possible good reason is there to do that other than making money from it? I, I, I don't understand it. And I can't get past it into taking anything else seriously when this very simple point of a, of a, a population that is not at risk being encouraged relentlessly to take this vaccine that does not have a benefit to them and only they're small risks, but only have risks associated. I don't get it. And I really don't like it. Well, yeah, I, I think it's been a, a confusing part of the um the COVID thing from the beginning that like, like there's a number of public health issues where it seems like in Europe, other North American countries, they have a slightly, I I don't know, something about their politics is like less totalitarian with public health edicts. Like they're able to say sort of, this is the social benefit. I mean, it's true of some European countries and not true of others, but they're, they're able to parse it in the public view of like, Oh, you know, here's why a, a vaccination might help you. Here's why it might not. And I don't know why. I mean, I think RFK is saying in part uh, it's because of the financial relationship between public health and the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and he's he's laying that, you know, first and foremost at the feet of, of Anthony Fauci. But do you have an opinion on I, I feel like, you know, a little bit more about RFK's background than me. So before we get into uh, like some of the parts of the book, do you have do you know why he sort of like public health became such a bugaboo for him in in the first place? Because this has sort of always been an issue of his, right? Well, so you know, public health came from his you know decades as as a environmental attorney, and uh, came out of that. I mean, the way that he tells the story about his his um, involvement in vaccine science, vaccine skepticism whatever he tells of, of listening to mothers come to him and demand that he pay attention to this in an alleged link with autism. And that is, um, I guess, happened when he was doing one of his Monsanto trials. And he tells some, you know, dramatic story about this woman coming to his doorstep and refusing to leave until he read the science. And basically he said there, you know, there can't be this many women who are so sure their kid was fine. They gave them these these vaccines. And then the next day they they, they weren't fine. That at some point you had to listen to a mother's intuition and give these women the time of day. And that's how he talks about his, his uh, involvement in this particular issue. Um, And, you know, it it does get, there's surprisingly little in the book about 
like the genuine the general vaccine schedule like he talks much more about it right. than he does in here there's very little and maybe that's because anthony fauci had very little to do with uh the, the 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 updated vaccine schedule but um really on vaccines he really sticks to the science on 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 covid exclusively right i mean he talks about some different trials for other infectious diseases but like i'm talking about you know smallpox or whatever or yeah and i i do know the vaccine schedule is another thing where the united states is sort of a unique country in terms of how many, I think it's something like, you know, for little kids now, we have like 13. Most EU countries, it's like seven or eight. And it's um, 72 shots total. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know that one of the complaints I've heard, too, is that there's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of, like, cross-cutting research. You know, each individual vaccine is studied for sort of safety and efficacy, but there's not a lot of... Um, there's not a lot of research into like the sequence and what happens if they get them at once or at some time. And I know that I've I've spoken to uh, some army veterans who like had to get a, as adults get a bunch of uh, vaccines at once before deployment because they were behind. And the way they did it in the army, at least during the Gulf War, is they'd have like an air gun with uh, a shitload of vaccines at once. And some of them describe sort of uh, weird weird problems with that. So. Yeah, I, I, you know, as you said, I sort of associated RFK Jr. and Jenny McCarthy uh, in the past as two figures with like disastrous, a few disastrous public interviews, you know, about uh, vaccinations and autism, I guess, and, and sort of not taking it seriously and just having people told me like, oh, that was all that was all debunked. And I was just sort of like, OK, fair enough. Yeah. And I think you you maybe have had this longer than I have, but like. I uh, just hearing that something's been thoroughly debunked for for a long time for me from sources that I trusted was like was more than enough. Um, It's just not anymore. And I I think like the the media silencing, particularly, I mean, Bobby Kennedy, it's just it's such an it's like the seminal example. And what's going to happen now, the blowback against what was what was done to him is going to make him a such. A, a much larger and more important figure um, because he's lived through what millions of Americans see has happened in terms of what their news consumption looks like, what's okay to talk about, what's not okay to talk about. Um, and, you know, we can get into that whenever, but it, like between now and Thanksgiving is going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out because you're going to have, um, you know, what's happened you know Robert F. Kennedy announced that he was announcing uh, announced that he was running against um, Joe Biden in the Democratic primaries initially came out with polling numbers that were between 20 and 25 percent among likely Democrats most people explain that away well it's the Kennedy name they were right about that the more that Democrats learned about Robert F. Kennedy the less they liked him um the poll numbers went down. They were in the low, in the high single digits, low double digits up until a few weeks ago. Most recent one, I think, had him at 25 percent against Biden. But when you go to the state by state polls in New Hampshire, he was like 50 points underwater with Democrats. And in the word association, you know, what do you think of when you think of Robert F. Kennedy? Literally all of the top ones when you look are like 
you know, crackpot conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, lunatic, dangerous, whatever. And, and you know, even if Biden weren't on the ballot, Biden would get 65 percent of write-ins for the primary. That, that's not even going to happen in New Hampshire. And so as RFK did this blitz of news, which was initially taken up by mainly by Fox and then further from Fox, like, you know, he did the, 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 the regular Fox interviews, the Tucker stuff, and then into, you know, Bannon World uh, and Roger Stone and these folks who really saw this as an opportunity to prop up somebody who would embarrass Joe Biden, an articulate guy with a really famous last name who could embarrass and rough Biden up a little bit in advance of uh, the general election. And what happened during this time also as RFK began raising a ton of money, tens of millions of dollars, mostly, funnily enough, from right-wing techies in California, um, started doing these really long-form podcast interviews with comedians and, and political pundits where he could talk extemporaneously for long periods of time on things and, and, and relate to people, uh, which was really good. And what you saw... And, and his Joe Rogan interview in particular, you saw his numbers among Republicans now, aside from Donald Trump, Robert F. Kennedy's the most popular Republican in the country, politician, and he's not a Republican. So this effort worked way too well for folks, at least who are part of the Republican establishment, who are trying to embarrass Joe Biden, because now that the DNC has made it, you know, they made it impossible for him to win delegates in the primaries through the rules, even if he was going to be able to accumulate delegates if you were to get the votes, they wouldn't have been able to win the nomination. Um, and, you know, on top of that, uh, uh, you know, you had RFK show up when he was called to call before Congress when, the, you know, the, the entire, uh, I forget which committee was, you know, said this is hate speech. We're not giving time to an anti-Semite. Uh, then, then, then that happened. And, and finally, RFK, I guess this week was like, well, you know, I'll run as, as an independent. And he's announcing that, I guess, October 9th. And I think between now and Thanksgiving, a really interesting thing's going to happen because the three-way polling hasn't been done publicly. If, if you've got a choice between Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who are you going to vote for? And those first polls will come out this week or, or next week. And if RFK is polling between 20 and 25% among Democrats who hate him, what are those numbers going to look like in a three-point race? And to me, it seems impossible that they'll be lower than that. It just it doesn't make sense that they would be lower than that. Then you have this situation where you have two major party nominees who are both deeply unpopular. The only thing Americans agree on with the presidential election is they don't want to have to choose between Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. And now all of a sudden you'll have this candidate who's polling as well as Ross Perot did in 1992 and 1996 who most Americans don't know, who's, who, who, who very few have a negative impression of except for partisan Democrats. And you have a situation uh, that's really volatile. And we'll have to see how the mainstream news who, who, have, who have blacked him out are going to handle that, um, how the Democratic Party is going to handle it, although they've handled it brilliantly. They've made him unacceptable. And then how does Donald Trump deal with this? Um, it's going to be a really interesting couple months. And, you know, I, I, I see at least a path. We're approaching the end of the year and we're seeing three-way polls um, where it's even between all three candidates. And, and the conventional wisdom, I think I'll stop talking, but the conventional wisdom for months has been, well, you know, Robert F. Kennedy's a junior. His father was uh, Bobby Kennedy. 
his uncle was John F. Kennedy. He's a Democratic scion. This is a, a, a troll job to hurt Joe Biden. And in the time that he's been in the race, he's been so effective in communicating with non-Democrats uh, that he's, to my view, an existential threat to Donald Trump's candidacy. Because the issues where Trump is weakest among his right flank are the issues where Bobby Kennedy is the strongest. He's exceptionally dangerous to Donald Trump. And the last thing I'll say on this is the way this vote, these votes break down in different states are going to be very different. Like he could end up in a place like New Hampshire hurting Biden more than Trump. But then you go to a place like Mississippi or South Carolina, these very traditionally safe Republican places who have 40 percent African-American populations who vote you know, uh, monolithically for the Democratic nominee and very strong for Biden. How does Bobby Kennedy go among those groups? Could literally flip states the uh, uh, the other way that you wouldn't even think are on the table. It's um, there's a lot of math that's going to be have to be done. I don't think it's done yet, and I don't think folks, particularly on the right, have realized that they may have created a monster that they that they can't control. Well, okay, so I'm gonna. I'm going to push back just a little bit because I think one of the things uh, – because we've talked about this and one of the things I've wanted to argue with you about is like you've always characterized it as like Roger Stone and uh, what's his name? Bannon like didn't realize what they were doing whereas like I think of those two characters as like not really committed to Trump or the right at all. And if they could create, you know, a third party candidate um, who made a lot of noise and was in the media cycle and like, you know, wasn't particularly right wing, but was sort of anti-establishment in the way they like, I think that would be fine with them. You're certainly right. I mean, for people like me uh, who would like to see Trump win in 2024, I I am very concerned about it. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the types of people I interact with on Twitter, they actually have moved to calling this like a DNC op, you know, that someone must have planned this because it's going to end up being, you know, worse for Trump uh, than it is for Biden. I don't I don't see any evidence of that. I just think like, you know, Stone and Bannon and these guys, they've always been sort of like populist mercenaries and particularly because they weren't given like free reign in the in the Trump administration or even Trump campaign. I think they're always looking for sort of like new new insurgent candidates. So I I think they did this well, knowing it was, that it, it was a positioning. So that, that I, I'll concede that on them. But the way in the mainstream conservative media, pages of the Wall Street Journal, Trump, uh, you know, trumping his candidacy, Fox having him on essentially every night to talk about how Joe Biden was rigging the election and not up to be president. That that they used it because he was running in the Democratic primary. Um, I don't think it was intentional. I think, you know, RFK Jr. is a really compelling character because he's always done literally whatever he wants and said whatever. And it makes him immensely appealing to voters that he'll say whatever he thinks. And even if that means him being banned from the Internet, he'll do it proudly and, and, and stand by it. That now that he's actually an independent, um, you know, I, how do you think that the, the, the Trump world, as they wrap this nomination up over the next couple of months, um, how are they going to deal with this? Because they can't attack him, right? What are they going to attack him on? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think you're right about that. I think it's 
I think it's a problem for Trump. I wouldn't know. You know, Trump has really good instincts, better instincts than me about like how to undercut someone. So I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't know whether or not he could. You know, make fun of RFK Jr. and do it effectively. Um, it's also weird because it's you know the context in which he destroyed other people uh, in the 2016 primary was different because. You know they were they were direct competitors for the nomination. So like, if they held out some, because the thing is like he can't. No matter how he goes at RFK, he can't vanquish him from the ballot. Like that's the ultimate problem. So and I, he can't I don't know. stop his supporters from flirting with him, which they really like to do. And you know we heard RFK talk about it. he he's talked. A lot, a lot about how Trump is, you know, this great communicator and great debater. And he said, you know, one of his arguments for running against Biden, he said, I'm the one who can actually debate Donald Trump because I can take him on on the lockdowns. Like what on earth is going to happen when that happens? If that opportunity happens, it's not it's not going to be good for Donald Trump. And and that sort of says when you're talking when I'm interested to hear about, you know, this place on on the Internet where this is seen as like a DNC setup, the DNC handled this beyond perfectly they managed to make sure that biden didn't wasn't actually challenged and nobody was voted they rigged the rules in advance unlike what they did in 2016 where they had to kind of do it after the fact and as bernie was gaining momentum they wrapped up the nomination for biden then they brought him to the hill and made it clear that congressional democrats can't even talk to him or listen to him without calling him an anti-semite and and a purveyor of hate speech and misinformation they communicated to the base Democrats that this is not somebody you can be associated with. He's insane. They kicked him out of the party entirely without anybody having to vote. And now, you know, when you're talking about sewing up the base against Democrats who are going to vote against Joe Biden, it's done. That job is done. Robert Kennedy's not a threat to, but he's a huge threat to people who haven't decided, who aren't necessarily sold on, on Trump. Women are a huge block that Trump already has big issues with Republicans. And if you look at Bobby Kennedy's polling, he pulls very, very way higher among women than men. Um, and I mean, you can speculate as to why that is. Uh, but I yeah, he's a recovering drug addict. They love that. <laughs> right. Who, who thinks everyone is poisoning their children, um, which, which also is. You know, I, I just see, you know, I see developing in my mind, like, let's say we get to a place where you, know, you have to have 15 percent in a in the general election poll to participate in the three presidential debates. It's a bloodbath if if Joe Biden and and and, and uh, Donald Trump have to take the stage and debate this guy. Um, it's like election changing. And I don't know how the math works. I suspect people are talking about, oh, he'll have trouble getting on the ballot in all 50 states. I'm not so sure. I don't know all the rules, but the reason that, you know, a libertarian party is a party that gets on is because they have, they've done this for decades and have the infrastructure to get the, the names on the ballot. But the other thing about about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is he's not going to run out of money. Um, it's not going to happen. He's, he's not going to have more than the other guys, but he's going to have enough to compete as long as he wants to, which is just, it's not, this isn't, a situation that that has happened in American politics since 1992 and 1996, when Ross Perot was running in the in in the 20s, I think he won 25 percent in 1996. Both elections, by the way, had he been in um, uh, uh, 
had he not run in either election, Democrat Bill Clinton would have been elected either time. Like there, there's no, it, it's basically impossible to conceive that if Perot was in the uh, wasn't in the race, that Clinton would have been able to win those two elections. So like this is a really big deal. It's happening right now. No, that all makes sense. And I've wondered about the getting on the ballots thing. One thing I wanted to ask you was like, because a lot of times when these rich guys run, the people they have around them, people who are sort of celebrities, you know, outsiders, RFK is like a weird mix where it's like, I mean, does he have political people around him? Does he have an organization with infrastructure that could take care of these sorts of things? No. Um, I mean, he has he has big big funders though and big tech funders who know how to who, who, who know how to get this stuff um, who know how to get this stuff done and like you said you know you sort of alluded to people like Bannon and 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 Roger Stone is like chaos creators the folks who are backing Bobby Kennedy they that's what they want they want the chaos that comes with all, with every bit of momentum um, that he gets uh, and so I don't know how this, how exactly this plays out, but if RFK does it well, which presumably he's run an excellent campaign so far, getting what he does is, you know, we'll come into the end of the year with, uh, with, with a third party candidate who's at least pulling 20%, maybe 30 as people get introduced to him. Um, and, uh, voters like him. They like him way more. He's the most, he is the most popular politician in America right now by favorable, unfavorable. Now, Part of that is because a lot of people um, haven't heard anything that he said because they haven't been allowed to. Part of it is that he has a famous last name. And part of it is he's cultivated a lot of goodwill among a bunch of people over the past, whatever, four decades of of, uh, of being in public life, working on environmental and children's health issues. Um, yeah, being an interesting lunatic. I mean, I like all interesting lunatics. I, I wish uh, – it, it's interesting. What do you think his perspective on – his impact on the general election is because I saw him on a clip on Twitter from him on Theo Vaughn's podcast and Theo Vaughn asked him a question like, you know, people say you're a Republican or whatever. And uh, RFK Jr. was like, well, the polling shows I'm going to hurt Trump, not Biden. Right. But that's an interesting thing for him to concede because his a lot of his like strongest rhetorical flourishes are against Biden. So like, is that what's, how does he make sense of that contradiction or does he just well, so, so it's interesting because I was watching an interview with Gavin Newsom, who's another interesting player in this last week. And he, Bobby Kennedy and Gavin Newsom were extremely close friends for decades. And Newsom has talked since the start of his political career that it wasn't Bobby Kennedy Sr. that was his political hero. It was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his work on the Hudson River um, and on environmentalism that got him involved in politics and saw him as a hero of his. And that's the Democratic Party pussy posse, RFK Jr. and Gavin Newsom. They were... <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so, uh, but talking about that, and they were asking him, they, they were the interviewer was asking him, and he seemed relatively candid, and they were like, so what's happening here? Is he being used... And Gavin Newsom said, no, no, he's much too smart to, to be used. He's not anybody's tool, but he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think that's probably spot on. Um, I think he thinks he has a path to victory or he wouldn't be doing it. Um, and and it, we haven't even gotten to the fact that, uh, uh, you know, his wife is a pretty big asset uh, 
in this and finally has been like comfortable doing interviews with him. Cheryl Hines, the, the, the actress and comedian um, supporting him. And like, it's put a bunch of people in a really uncomfortable spot who have been friends with Bobby Kennedy over the years for a long time. And now that he's, you know, there are so many different variables variables at play that it'll be interesting to see how it, it, it you know individual personalities um, will come down on him because he's been an inspiration to mainstream Democrats um, for a really long time. And well, that's inspiring to me. You know that in your sixties you could finally get your your GF to accept your radical politics. So you know, never <laughs> never give up the dream. Um, but yeah, because Cheryl was sort of like a normie Democrat for a while, right? Or was that – Yeah. Because I, I thought she was involved in like mainstream Democrat fundraising and all that stuff. Yeah, she she was uh, – yes, mostly she she was I think on the board of the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, which Bobby Kennedy I think was involved in founding. And then, you know, that it's it's the environmentalism of, of, of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is its own several hours long podcast because – it's unclear to me whether he thinks we should even do anything about human caused climate change. Like that answer, he doesn't really give like it's a, he talks much more aspirationally about the environment and why it's important to protect as like an outdoorsman. And he's never, um, he's never been seen as like a global warming, a lot like in the Al Gore camp. Right. But, his, but well, yeah, he yet probably his, yet he his, probably can't reveal that he's just rooting for the Earth to win, <laughs> right? But like, given you know his environmental bona fides are, are second to none, um, and you know, like when he introduces that, some of the issues on which he appeals to Democrats and non-Democrats are like, you know, he won that huge lawsuit against Monsanto. Nobody likes Monsanto, right? Like he's taken on and beaten corporate villains who everybody hates except for party elites on on both sides so um he, he basically he's got a story to tell to uh uh to everyone but yeah if i were the trump campaign i i wouldn't even know how to go about dealing with this threat other than to take it like as seriously as anything else moving forward it's uh it, it he it, there may be nothing that he can do about it no yeah that's that's definitely my worry because i mean i think i said to you months ago like trump needs to get him on the ticket and you sort of said you know bobby would never do that and i i said fair enough but that's that's the only way i saw to sort of neutralize uh, i mean he he won't do that because he doesn't like donald trump he doesn't think he was a good president uh, and, you know, but the way he's he's managed, he's basically running the Republican primary while not being a threat to people and getting people to say Ron DeSantis said that he would put him in charge of of what the was it the EPA uh, or, or HHS? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. He said he said he'd put him in his cabinet to take a wrecking ball of these things like um, these are things that you can't take back or you can, but you'll 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 look like a fool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm Donald Trump looking at numbers among suburban women. I mean, Jesus Christ, this is a nightmare. And I think it's only the last day or two that I've started reading anybody who has anything to say about this other than a big worry that Joe, uh, uh, for Joe Biden. But um, this is great. No, and it's that is why a lot of people on my side of Twitter are suspicious, because, like, it is mind numbing because I know what you're talking about, like 
every day there's there's people are still echoing the thing of like oh this is a real problem for joe biden and like that analysis has seemed off for like months never been Um, a problem for him yeah it's it's all i don't know and just so people like listening are clear the problem with this is like you know these are two elections we're talking about 2016 and 2020 where like tens of thousands of votes were implicated so like even in scenarios where RFK, like you're saying you could see a particular path to the presidency and you think he sees that. I don't know what I think about that because it's just – I think there are a lot of structural ca- challenges for third-party candidates but like – or independent candidates. But he doesn't need to pull a lot of uh, Trump people to his cause to make winning impossible for Trump. And Trump already has a lot of – structural challenges so that's well and i I don't hate rfk but this this is sort of discouraging to to, me to be a little aspirational the other thing is that bobby kennedy is going to be the first non-traditional candidate to run in you know money in politics is at a point now and i've said this for a while and i think people also hopefully think this is true now because it is is that like it's certainly is never it, it is just not the case that the candidate with the most money wins. It's actually never been the case, but it's it's definitely it, it was the case in isolated incidents. Now it's like, do you have enough money to make sure that everybody who need everybody who you need to hear what you're saying um, can hear it? Uh, and all three of these candidates are going to have that, like the 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 last minute flood of advertising or people at your door, like it's all noise. Um, beginning in, in, in the summer of 2024. And it's like, does he have enough juice? And I don't know. I mean, one thing we haven't touched on is what, what, and it's, it's interesting in my, the conspiracy theorists in my mind is like, of course the polling has been done by the Trump campaign, and the Biden campaign of what does this look like when it shakes out? Like, of course that's been done, but none of it's public. There's not a single. Well, right. Poll. That's why it, it seems weird and dishonest that people keep making the seemingly incorrect interpretation of how it will play out in public. Right. That's why people people get conspiratorial about it. Right. And people are going to be saying next week and the week after, uh, this, I can't believe the numbers that this guy's putting up. He's at, he's at 30%. He's five points behind Donald Trump and and Joe Biden. This is a three way race. Um, there, there is going to be that narrative out there. It, 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 the narrative just has, it has to be there. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to bring up, because you brought up DeSantis, I actually think one thing that's so interesting about RFK Jr. is like, and listen, like I'm I'm fucking old. I'm not the coolest person around, but I have watched these two candidates, Ron DeSantis and RFK Jr., roll out like the way they've engaged with the media. And I would say DeSantis has been like a perfect example of like a stuffy conservative who knows he has to engage with like new media with like random Twitter accounts and podcasts, but he doesn't really know how to do it and it's misfired. And somehow RFK, I think RFK after Trump is the most intuitive guy. Like, I don't know who told him like, go on Tim Dillon, talk about Red Scare, like tweet at all these freaks and idiots on the internet to just like show that you're cool Maybe it's just because he has a celebrity wife, but, like, his instincts about which sort of, like, nascent, uh, you know, I don't don't even know what to call them, like, outsider media networks 
Like, he, he really knows how to do that, and there's no one on the right besides Trump who does. I think people thought DeSantis would, would do that, but DeSantis just did, like, a, you know, a space with Elon where there was, you know, it's just weirdo on weirdo violence. Yeah, and you talk about that, you talk about young voters, like, we talked about suburban women, like, it just popped into my mind, like, let, let's say November, whatever, 9th, 2024, if it's a three-person race, uh, who wins the under 30 vote? Like, are you kidding, like... Is that even a question? Probably uh, not. Probably which not. is crazy to think about. Um, like, is it even a question who wins the under 30 vote? That's not an insignificant amount of people. Um, there are demographic groups. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. We'll have to see how it plays out. And I, the most interesting thing are going to be how do, um, you know, since he's announced for president, the major social media platforms have backed off and given him free reign. I noticed, you know, right after he launched his candidacy, like he he did an interview with Jordan Peterson that I watched, which actually was maybe like the the least conspiratorial thing. It was a lot of talk about his struggle with drug addiction and and uh, messages to young men and sort of in that Jordan Peterson lane. They didn't go off on conspiracies. and It was taken off of YouTube and. Since then, I don't think anything's been taken off. And he's done – I mean his interviews with you know, Joe Rogan and his interviews with, with, uh, 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 with Tim Dillon and Theo Vaughn were significantly more off the reservation. Um, so it seems like they've got their hands off on that. You know, His Instagram account is back on. They're going to have to talk about this on MSNBC and CNN uh, and on broadcast news. They, they can't totally ignore the story. So like how do they – how do they handle the narrative of a three-man a, a, a three race? I don't know. Do they have the power to turn everything off again? Because if they do, they may try it. Yeah. I, before we transition explicitly into the book, I have a I have a three-part question for you because you you sort of made reference to it, but you have a lot of experience with politics. So I wanted to ask: When did he stop being a drug addict and a sex addict? And then the third part of the question is. Are former addicts like naturally built for politics because you can engage with it like obsessively and manically in the way they used to engage with whatever it is they were addicted to? So and I think I have the the uh, the, the the times right. But I, I'm not I, I believe what he said is that he was an addict from when his father was killed. I think he was 16 until he was tw- in his late 20s. Um, and. You know, that's also something when people hear him talk about his struggle with addiction, like it's a very relatable story, whether you've had addiction struggles or not. But, um, you know, he still goes, I guess he goes to um, to to meetings every day. He's very much in that 12 step um, form. I'm not sure he's ever stopped being uh, uh, a sex addict. I don't know if. uh, Yeah. Why would you? (laughs) if, if, If you read some of these stories like from the 90s about. You know, his his first wife, I believe, uh, committed suicide when they were in the midst of a separation. There was a lot of ugly press around him, um, you know, womanizing in this book that he had of like sleeping with like over 100 women in a year and ranking them and whatever. And it's it's interesting reading, but like it's also kind of adorable to think that would be a scandal in 2023. You know, like it's uh, uh, I, I don't think any of it is I don't think any of that stuff is harmful, really to uh uh to anybody but um no and a kennedy being a huge coxman is like 
that's you know people like that brand yeah and like you know every time i listen to him, there's something interesting that like you know he's, he's like just a profoundly interesting human being like he used to have a pet lion like he's a professional what do you call the, the falconer he like trains <laughs> he, he, he trains falcons um well, yeah, all these fucking former drug addicts, they have too many intense hobbies because they just need to be busy all the time or they're going to, you know, pick up the needle. Right. Um, and uh, I do think it's very relatable, the 12-step stuff. It sort of charms me, but I don't like him figuring it out and getting sober by his late 20s. That's too early. Not <laughs> relatable. Right, it's probably not relatable in his own family particularly. But – yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, – and he's been – you know, I, I think one other thing we haven't really touched on is like what his campaign's actually about, which uh, is another thing that's like – it's apolitical. If you listen to the things he's talked about, the speeches that he's given and, and, and what he's talking about, there is a public health phase, but, but it's much less about vaccines and much more about uh, – illness epidemics why are our kids so sick why do we spend the most on healthcare and get the worst uh and get the worst outcomes why do so many kids have autism why do they have diabetes why is uh attention deficit disorder the way it is why is it so different than other developed countries why do we have so many comorbidities so that a million people uh, uh died of covid talking about the you know the this epidemic of, of of disease and he's always been concerned with like you know getting mercury out of water like he speaks intelligently about this stuff because he's lived through these battles so there's that then there's you know the economic like it, the the central point that he's talking about all the time whenever he asks is is how how the american middle class is being strip mined from the top about you know these these huge companies BlackRock and State Street and, and Vanguard who are going to be the largest uh, 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 owners of single family homes. Also, there's a little bit of conspiracy to it, right? There's the Larry Fink, the 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 uh, Great Reset, the you'll own nothing and you'll like it. But he threads the needle when he talks about these things in a way that I'm going to help you be like he, he, you know he tells this story again and again, which is very relatable. I I don't own a home. I'm not in a position where I can own a home, but. Of friends of mine who have got it, where they go, they go in, they 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 make an offer, they think they have a house, and then at the last minute, there's a cash offer that comes in that they can't compete with, and that uh, uh, they they can't have that house, and it happens again and again, and it's because these large companies have LLCs that go in and purchase these single family homes and 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 turn people into renters. So you know his signature policy now is you know backing uh, you know three percent mortgages uh, for first for first time home buyers like talking about not having an ownership society being a proud capitalist but putting limits on these folks who are and 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 it, the problem with inflation most americans are paycheck to paycheck like it's not really stuff that biden and and, and trump are doing any more than giving uh lip service to like if he's smart which he is i assume we'll see rfk next week in detroit with the uaw workers because somebody has to do that in a serious way um, and take on you know the big corporate interests. You didn't you didn't find Biden's picketing serious. <laughs> well, I mean, I think like that's a huge opportunity for RFK to get in there and stand with those uh, to stand uh, with those workers. Um, and then on foreign policy, like the stuff that he believes actually isn't even really where I am. I probably have the most differences with him on on foreign policy stuff. But his position of like, well, maybe we should stop giving billions of dollars to Ukraine right now. Like that doesn't seem like it's going to be particularly controversial. Um, 
and stopping what he calls the the forever wars. Like it's this platform that takes like a, a smiling face who you like and you want to trust with a distrust for big everything, for big business, for big politics, uh, 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 to everything else, to, to saying I'm on your side with this sort of isolationist, you know, Rand and Ron Paul libertarian strike combined with this economic justice, Bernie Sanders. There's something there for everybody. And he's a slate where you can sort of see whatever you want to to see on him. There's something to like for everybody. And when you have two defined candidates who are both octogenarians and who nobody like, people don't like either of them. I mean, look, maybe there will be another third party candidate um, that causes a stir. But it seems to me that that RFK Jr. is like, in a really unique place, personally, politically, to shake up this election and have it become, have him be the determining factor more than any other externality, whether it's a war, whether it's who wins debates, whether it's a scandal with, with whether, you know, like it's such a point now, and we'll see over the next couple of weeks that like this, how Bobby Kennedy's race translates to the general elector to the general electorate is more important than whether Trump is convicted of a crime, <laughs> you know, has to do this from, from, from jail, whether uh, the Hunter Biden stuff gets worse, whether Biden is actually impeached. Like um, this stuff doesn't matter so much as how the numbers are going to change by having a credible third party um, candidate in the race who to me hurts one candidate um, and, 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 and helps another in a way that, just hasn't hasn't really happened before no it's crazy and as you're describing all these things it makes me realize that like rfk really is like the stylistic and uh i don't know the stylistic and in some ways even like substantive or or policy heir to trump in in a way that desantis like tried to be but failed and it's i don't know it's it's really it's frustrating to me because because Trump is still in there. But I, I would say to the to the listeners and the people who think this might be like an op, because uh, I think that is a popular belief in my part of uh, Twitter that like somebody cooked this up because obviously it's going to help Biden. Like I do think RFK legitimately like hates a lot of these people he he talks about and that's why he's he's doing it. So like I don't think he's anybody's. Patsy, but it's still sort of uh, sad for me that it 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 seems so probable that the way it's going to play out is just be like the way I expect it to play out is that I don't think RFK has a real shot to be president, but I think he definitely has a shot to prevent the possibility of a, a Trump second term, and so that makes me sort of sad. But in saying that, I hope people don't construe that as me saying I think he's like a a hired hand of the DNC because I, I think he I, I think his sort of outsider bona fides are legit I, you know oh, they're, they're, just... they're totally legit and he has contempt you know I think he has much more contempt for Donald Trump than he has for for uh, for Joe Biden I mean he's talked about what a disappointment it was um, to have you know the, the pandemic playbook which was written by our government about what to do if there's a pandemic and that plan was ready for Trump to do. Uh, and he just did the opposite. He shut the country down. You're not supposed to do that. Right. You're not supposed to shut the country down. You're supposed to, to isolate and protect the vulnerable and everybody else is supposed to uh, go on with their lives. You're not supposed to, uh, uh, to shut the economy down. 
not supposed to have stay-at-home orders. Um, and uh, all of that stuff happened. And like uh, Trump, who, who, you know, ended up doing more, I think, the way he sees it to enable this deep state and, and unelected bureaucrats running the show more than anybody in American history has um, to cede that power that used to rest, at least in theory, with with the people in their elected in their elected representatives. Yeah, I I get that. I do sort of I mean, I want to defend Trump slightly just on the grounds that like. I don't think I mean, I, I think he he went in with a couple issues he wanted to address and not that he even ended up getting what he wanted on those. But I think that the way I perceive his sort of actions during the pandemic was that he somewhat naively was like, oh, this is actually like an externality that I don't uh, know that much about. And I actually will like defer to the experts, which is funny in retrospect, because, of course, the media at that time was just, you know, playing isolated clips of him talking about injecting bleach and being like, we're all we're all going to die because this madman believes like the sun cures COVID or whatever. But of course, he he empowered Fauci and the public health people and. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly think it's it's fine for people to find fault with with Trump about that. But maybe this is this is a good segue for us to get more into the the book a little bit. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so the the, the book basically there. You know, I don't know how you want to organize the conversation, but to me, the the it, it's sort of linear in the book. Um, where he talks about what happened immediately after the virus came out, how the pandemic playbook was was thrown out. You know, the, the, there's the conspiratorial part, which is, you know, the, the thesis around treatments, you know, and he said that during the early parts of COVID, if you got COVID and you were sick, you went to the hospital and the hospital said, um, go home and do nothing. Uh, but if you can't breathe later, come back and we'll put you on a ventilator and we'll kill you, I think are, are the, the, the words that he had. And, and RFK's point is that there were these two drugs in particular in cocktails, hydroxychloroquine uh, and uh, what's the other? Why is it not coming to me? Uh, Rim, uh, not remdesivir. Hydroxychloroquine and uh, the, 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 you know, the horse medication. I thought hydroxychloroquine was the ivermectin. Ivermectin, no, I, yeah, ivermectin is the, the 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 horse one. And what 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 he, you know, these are two drugs who, yeah, I don't know how to read scientific studies. I mean, from what he says, they're, they 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 showed miracle cures for this. And um, you know, my father, who's, who's an epidemiologist himself, has said that this is absolute nonsense. They're not antiviral drugs. There's no mechanism of action that would make sense for either of these drugs to be effective against COVID. But the government's response was was so over the top in saying, you know, you can't take ivermectin because it's horse medicine and have the, have the you know, the FDA tweet, don't take horse medicine. And the, what happened to Joe Rogan, which was in, insane for saying that he took this drug when like the science behind it is that they're both incredibly safe drugs, that no one was going to die from taking them. And the scientific community, I guess their objection to them was that they probably wouldn't work. But it got to the point that, um, you know, the, the government was 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 uh, was telling doctors they can't prescribe this. And RFK sees something conspiratorial in that, basically saying that the decision was made early on. Well, 
let these drugs are cheap and generic and they work. So we're not going to let anybody have them. We're going to stop them from having it. And what we're going to do is develop remdesivir, uh, which is something to give too late that, by the way, never actually worked, which is a pretty incredible thing given how it was uh, 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 pumped up by everybody. Um, but we're going to do that and we're going to wait for a vaccine and make people and make people pay for that. And then we're going to wait for these antivirals that are out uh, now. Like what's the what's the, the one that 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 gives you COVID if you take it? Um, that, that, <laughs> I remember seeing something about that, but I don't. I mean, that's I think sort it's of the, a the theme Pfizer the... COVID drug. Like it stops you. It, uh, it, it stops you from being hospitalized or dying from COVID. But I think it also gives you COVID again, if, if I have that right. Well, that would make it much more similar to a real vaccine. Than a, okay. And so there, there's there's that part, which I think is interesting. Um, there's the, the anti-lockdown stuff, which, of course, I, 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 I totally agree with. And then the stuff that was really interesting, what I learned the most about was the vaccine development and how that how that went and how it was sold. And I guess what... So what I took away from the book about this were, first of all, the trials, which were stopped. Every clinical trial um, on the COVID vaccine, the initial ones as part of Warp Speed, uh, were stopped between three and six weeks um, with the reasoning that the, it was working so well in producing antibodies that the control group, it'd be unethical not to give the control group the actual vaccine. So we have to stop the study now because it's so good. The results are so good that we have to give it to the control group or we'd be doing or we'd be doing harm to them, which obviously is open up to conspiracy. Like, well, then, you know, what, wh where is, where is the control group? And RFK's thesis on this seems to be the reason that everybody needed to get the vaccine, why it had to be mandated at first was to eliminate a control group. If everybody gets the vaccine, there is no control group, but seeing how that was developed, seeing how they knew early on that this didn't stop transmission, but they told us it did anyways. There was the, the virus stops with you campaign. If you get it, you can't get coronavirus. It's not going to hurt you. You also can't give it to anybody, which is a big reason why people like me went to get the vaccine was so that I knew that I could be out and living the life I wanted to without wearing a mask, going to large events and knowing that I wasn't going to kill somebody's grandma. That's why I got the vaccine. That's why I think a lot of people like me um, – went to get the vaccine. They knew that wasn't true. Um, and then the targeting towards children, which to me is something that I, I haven't even heard anything close to a good explanation as to why this was an okay thing um, to do. It probably hasn't killed that many people, but like definitely killed more people than it saved, right? Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make any... <laughs> declarative statement like that but yeah I, I again like you know as context for people like uh you and i and a third guy we grew up with were living together during the pandemic and i actually think it was a very clarifying experience because i think the three of us have pretty i don't know we represent like a diversity of viewpoints i I was in the midst of becoming, you know, moving from somewhat of a normie conservative to a, a right-wing lunatic. You guys have more normal uh, normal politics. But I think part of the reason it worked for us being together, or I don't know, maybe our influence on one another was like, it, maybe it wasn't even the same things, but there were there were things about the COVID experience that disturbed all three of us. I, I think for one of us, it was like the work-related 
compulsion to get vaccinated was like a bridge too far. But I, I think for you and I, a lot of what what was like disturbing or what people would call red pilling was like there kept just being these repeated instances of people like lying, conceding that they had been lying, but then explaining why they lied. And then like we weren't supposed to take the fact that they just lied into uh, consideration going forward. So, like, the first one I remember is that when Fauci pretty quickly, you know, he told people not to buy masks. Then later he switched and told people to buy masks. And then shortly after that, he went on TV and was like, well, there was a mask shortage. So, like, I had to I had to try and uh, conserve masks for the elected, you know, the, the people in positions, uh, doctors, nurses who needed them. So I had to lie. But then, like... That was all covered, but no one ever said going forward, like, well, he's just conceding that he views his public comms role as, like, constant sort of manipulation. And I didn't Right, I didn't it's know like, if, what else – it's a pretty reasonable question to ask, okay, what else did you have to lie about and why? Right, and I also think there's – and I said this at the time, but, like, I think if you like history, if you like Machiavelli or, or any of these, like – people who have a more, I don't know, practical utilitarian view of politics, like it's actually like a weird and unique, uniquely humiliating thing to constantly uh, expose the public to how you were trying to humiliate them. Like what I said at the time was like, I wish Fauci would stop conceding when he was lying and just lie in like a consistent way where we could just be like, well, we're being spun, but we don't really know, you know, exactly how. So, like, to me, there was something uniquely insulting and sort of modern America about a public figure going meta and being like, well, here's how I had to manipulate you before, baby, but I won't do it anymore. Like, now I love you for real or whatever. You know, it felt like a, like, new and advanced type of uh, pickup artist or something. And I was, like, uniquely infuriated by that. And I think... You know, I'm just I'm saying all this to say, like, there's a lot in this book that seems, uh, I don't know, wild or out there. He certainly includes things that I wouldn't have included. And we can talk about the the AIDS thing. But I I do think for me, uh, living with you guys at that time, COVID was maybe like the last nail in the coffin for me of sort of like believing that our system of media and governance like eventually arrives at the right answers or that we eventually know the truth because it was like even when people were sort of conceded like even when you could find on the public record someone admitting to have previously lied it didn't uh impact the public conversation in any significant way so like i just say that to say that you know a lot of these medical questions a lot of the evaluations of studies like you mentioned like we're not qualified to do that but one thing i am qualified to say just having lived through that is like uh you can lie to the public and you can do so in a way where like they end up not even really caring that you lied and so that's that's why i would even pick up a book like this because i just sort of believe like the you know some loser like eric weinstein would say like the the consensus making apparatus is broken or something. I, I don't know how to put it in haughty terms, but it was definitely a difficult experience insofar as I was like, oh, yeah, some of us will probably die still believing incorrect 
things about this pandemic. Like there'll never be a real record of it. And I, I agree 100 percent. And I had, you know, I definitely had thought more and more about this had really and I think it was beyond just like a political transformation. There's a lot of things that were transformed about the way that I look at the world based off of what happened uh, with COVID, especially during that first year. And what you just described in terms of, of, of having public officials say the thing that I think changed the way I think about the world the most was the effect that that had on ordinary people where, where I'd have these, things of really wanting to, to do the right thing and protect others and then have, you know, people, uh, you know, yell out the yell out the window at you if you're walking the dog without uh, without without a mask on, like you're trying to to kill somebody or walking into a CVS really quick to get something and having people talk to you. And it's like, oh, this is why people like got, were put on the trains. You know, this is what happens. <laughs> I, I don't want to be too cavalier about that, but like this is what happens when that type of demonizing people it is said from the top and the fact that it's done so cavalierly as to admit right that you're lying about it and have that the the the, the like gaslighting part of this is is really difficult to overstate and i saw that behavior among people how americans treated other americans based off of really not knowing anything about them the way they talked to each other and then the things that we were and weren't allowed to say even during those initial you know that when 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 work went to Zoom or everything, and 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 when it became um, uh, uh, w- maybe the most dangerous thing was when it was when you were allowed to 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 be to portray yourself as a person of virtue and to put yourself above others because you were working from home, like you were making a sacrifice, you were being the good guy, you were protecting folks by by sitting at home doing something that millions and millions of Americans would have loved to have the privilege of doing, but they actually had real jobs to deliver things to real people and keep the economy working and make sure we're not, you know, living in caves that the the rest of us were able to have moral superiority over others by hiding ourselves in our house and having stuff delivered to us. It was, all of it was so gross. Um, and so transparent and then to not even be able to talk about it outside of say like our little circle of friends certainly not professionally um it made me much more open to when i hear folks like like bobby kennedy talking instead of being like that's insane where i'm like maybe you know maybe uh no yeah i think just to add on something you said i think that covid and the blm summer were both really important and they were important in succession because you realized with the COVID restrictions like, oh, there's a huge percentage of the population that like wants to be deputized as a school marm to like yell at other people and shame other people. It's just like most of the time there's no authority that's telling them like, yes, go yell at people for not wearing masks. But as soon as they get that green light, uh, they'll do it. And then the BLM riots was more like, oh, there's a huge percentage of people who just want to, like, burn down stores or, like, punch strangers. And as soon as they get the green light from authorities, they will also do that. So I think, like... And not not just that. And then to turn the conversation on the heads... You remember you're walking down, like, in Chinatown in D.C., where you have those couple of, um, like, on on 4th, 5th, and 7th Street, there are those, those Chinese... Uh, 
owned liquor stores, like one of which has like behind the bulletproof glass. And like when those stores put <laughs> put the BLM signs out on their uh, uh, thing so that nobody breaks their windows, that like that's not a place where it's good to be. Right. That's not I don't know if I'm if I'm if if I'm saying this right, but like the, everything about the way people were interacting with each other were so disingenuous when it was when literally I remember putting the TV on and, and, and people were saying stuff like, well, we can all be out hundreds of thousands because people forget that racism is the real virus. It's like, what the fuck? I thought the virus was the real virus. Um, and, and, and I thought ga- these gatherings were incredibly dangerous and then it was dangerous if we were, then it was silence is violence. If you are, if you are staying at home and not participating in the destruction of property. Um, no, and I can remember, this is like another, like, we're, we're just going down like sad memory lane here, but I remember conversations with people where I was, I was sort of talking about what we just talked about and people would be like, well, actually, like gathering in BLM Square is totally different than like going to a concert because, uh, you know, you'd like uh, there's like recycled air at the concert and there's not when you're outside. And it's like, it, first of all, it's like you're making all this shit up. Why are you doing this? Why are you transformed into like a weird priest of this new administration? But also like, I don't know. I, I I think like what they were saying probably wasn't true. But again, I, I didn't necessarily have the ability to evaluate it like on scientific grounds. I was just sort of like, oh, OK. So if you if you start like a really, uh, you know, draconian uh, new new way of life based on like a recently historically unprecedented civilization, like a lot of people will just immediately transform themselves into fairly intense advocates for it and, uh, you know, tie themselves into knots, making weird arguments. And not giving any sort of credence and totally disregarding, you know, the the others who they would never afford such privilege, like somebody who maybe wants to go to church on Sunday, right? Or maybe somebody who wants to to, to, uh, go bowling on on Thursday nights, right? Like those people, there would never be such an allowance for them. Um only for the righteous activity of, of the moment that's that that specifically approved right it, it was um it's a really dark time no yeah and i think it's i think it's it's useful for us to talk about just because that's that's sort of why i was interested in in reading this book and i think uh there are things in it and maybe we can get to one of them now that made me sort of roll my eyes and again i i've made a good faith effort to engage with this stuff but one of the things you asked me so there's a big section in on hiv and aids in the book um and a lot of people know that anthony fauci like his first big role in in public health was related to the aids crisis and it's interesting what criticisms you'll hear of fauci depending on sort of who you go to uh, because for me, a lot of the things he did during AIDS seem very similar to what he did during COVID, which was he refused to make distinctions between, you know, vulnerable groups and groups that weren't vulnerable. He just said this is a risk to everybody. He really focused on funneling research to vaccines as opposed to other kinds of treatments. Um, but I know what's funny is at no, the so, time. Sorry, Evan. What, one really important thing to add to that is it's mine. Right. 
everything about this goes through me. It's a, and, and it was a virus. We'll talk about that. But like it all goes under NIH. This is my decision to make, right? These are right. my guidelines to give, it, which was also very similar to, to COVID. Although maybe one more appropriate than the other, but. No, and it's very interesting. You can sort of see how, uh, you know, in sort of the unique development of Fauci's career, it was probably very helpful for him to get like a trial run with a pandemic that only impacted certain people. So he'd know all his like weird rhetorical tricks and, uh, but yeah, one of the things that's frustrating about the book is RFK is very tolerant of uh, what I would call like AIDS conspiracy theories. Like he he cites a lot. What's the guy's name? Peter Peter no, Dursey. Is that who you're talking about, Doctor Neudberg? No, Peter Duesberg. Duesberg. Sorry, Duesberg. Which, yeah, by the way, so, you, should, you should, again, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but, like, it's not really just AIDS conspiracies theories. It really is, like, the more I looked at it, just, like, it's it's actually AIDS denialism. Like, like it's it's just denying that HIV causes AIDS. It's really not all that much more complicated than that. Well, right. I'll, I'll put this call out on the podcast because I've been trying to figure out for a long time. Like, I've been aware for a long time uh, that there's this conspiracy, or I won't even call it a conspiracy theory, but there are these folks that think there's no connection between HIV and AIDS. And that's been confusing to me because I've had, you know, family members, at least the way it was told to me, you know, I'm not running blood tests myself, but I've got family members who were hemophiliacs, got blood transfusions, contracted HIV from uh, the blood transfusion that developed into AIDS and then they died. And so I was, I've was i always tried to understand Duesberg's perspective, which RFK sort of legitimates in this book. And I don't – I fully don't understand it. Like many of the things that Duesberg says are like confusing on their face. And maybe just as a layperson, like I'm too dumb to, to understand it. But I will put the call out for anyone listening. If they feel like they understand Duesberg, I'd love to have it explained to me because – I was reading a lot about him and a lot of people said, oh, actually, this group of hemophiliacs who who got AIDS uh, and got HIV from tainted blood and then developed into AIDS and many of them died. This, you know, category of people is like the main category that uh, dispels Duesberg because Duesberg said that, you know, actually AIDS comes from drugs. Right. That's the proof uh, that he that's, it's accepted that that's the proof that he's wrong. Right. And and I so I read an interview with him where he was like, actually, the hemophiliacs are the best evidence of all that my theories are correct. And how is that? But he, how did he explain that? Because I couldn't he, find that. He didn't elaborate it in a way that I could understand. But, yeah, the point everyone made is if you only get AIDS from doing certain drugs, which I guess was his argument, um, we have this control group of hemophiliacs, like, you know, many of whom or most of whom were not drug users like you know one of the problems was i guess in in certain urban gay communities at that time it was like impossible to track like you know most people would be both engaging in recreational drugs and uh like unprotected homosexual sex or whatever so you couldn't 
you couldn't separate out these these factors, right, but which is a, which is which creates weak immune systems, right? You, you're more likely to have STIs. You're more likely to get ill with uh, 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 really anything. If you're doing, you know, the research into like poppers is really disturbing when it comes up in terms of being linked to different cancers now. But right, what will be described like, and I'm not trying as that lifestyle, right, of, of the, the community that was initially ravaged by AIDS, at least in the United States, um, that, 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 that what I take from, from his hypothesis is that it was this group of people that it wasn't HIV that was destroying the immune systems. It was their behavior that was that was uh, doing that to the immune systems. HIV is a harmless pathogen, and the connection between that and AIDS um, is not proven. And I guess I can understand why for like in the 1980s, that might have been a theory that was worth investigating. But in 2023, like, is there anybody who, anybody still who, 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 who doesn't think that HIV is the cause of, of AIDS? I guess there is. I, I don't, well, I hadn't heard about it in a long time until I read this book. And it's also interesting because Duisburg has also said that a bunch of the anti-AIDS treatments, like the antivirals, actually cause AIDS, which is like, <laughs> which is weird. I mean, I guess that's related to the, the Paxlovid thing you were bringing up. But that's especially weird because a lot of the AIDS prophylactics now, like, work really well. And so... You know, that seems sort of definitive on this conversation as well, that like if if we've developed medications using the more popular understanding of HIV AIDS and those medications we've developed have allowed people with either HIV or AIDS uh, to live a long time that I mean, you know, that's not we could be making some wrong inference or wrong correlation, but we must we must understand something to to allow for that extended you know quality and quantity of life so again i'll put the call out if anybody feels like they understand the the Duisburg perspective and can cuz i will say it is disturbing just like reading uh or i am always disturbed when you read that someone is is like a very talented and uh celebrated scientist and and medical expert which Duisburg was and then sort of goes off the reservation like i it really pains me to just be dismissive of someone entirely and i try to not do that but i could not make sense of Duisburg's theories on hiv aids and i wasn't sure why rfk would include them in the book yeah, I mean, because let, out of- let me know if if folks respond to that. i mean i'm interested in it but as it pertains to to the book like it does sort of this was what was needed to tie this together of Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the global war on democracy and public health. And essentially, Kennedy's thesis is, you know, you have this big thing, and, and, and Fauci said, it's mine. It goes under NIH because it's an infectious disease. We're not looking into anything else. And we're discounting all of the other theories as to how that is. And we're going to spend all of this time and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in studies on, on, on you know, a vaccine on how to end what this, this pandemic, which really only I'm equipped within the government to lead the response to. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. From what I read in there, um, it seems like both things can be true that, you know, this was that AIDS was really good for Dr. Fauci's career, but um, at least if contemporary understandings of, of of the virus and what we need to do about it are true, like the things that he did and the order that he did them, I don't know. It seems like it probably saved a lot of lives. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny too because I brought up like the 
the criticisms from the gay community at the time, which I'm aware of because I was I was aware of Fauci as a kid when my family was kind of dealing with this stuff was people and it's it's very funny because this would have been a weird thing then but like there were a lot of gay advocates who were mad who were like in public he's being nice but privately he's telling us we have to close the bathhouses and like that's hateful and it's like I think back on that and I'm like, oh, I'm sort of surprised he told him to close the bath. Yeah, it seems like, like an appropriate balance he was striking given the time place. Yeah. Um. yeah, so it's – it's and also I think uh, RFK sort of uh, – he like elides all those various sources of criticism in the book because I really think like there are I, – I think the objective argument is that even during AIDS, the public health – uh, authorities of which Fauci was one were actually already at that time too hesitant to speak about what the actual risk factors for the disease was and too interested maybe for financial reasons in overplaying the degree to which uh, everyone was at risk and obviously that's that's a strategy and like one argument that you know RFK makes very compellingly is that like Fauci is brilliant at interacting with the institutions and understanding how to secure resources for himself. And I suspect that this this is an important part of that strategy, that you never concede it is a subpopulation that is most at risk to a virus. You always insist uh, that everyone is at risk and that sort of policies made to address it must be universal. And that does seem like a very consistent uh, quality of, of Fauci's public communications. And the... the, the emails that are coming out more and more now as I don't know why they can't come out all at once but the emails between Fauci and Francis Collins who's at CDC are like they're appalling about any time there were these studies when the what, what's the declaration that came out the the uh, Belfort yeah, declaration, the, the declaration like of all those doctors who basically said let's do what the actual pandemic playbook said to do let's not shut things down there you know consequences to shutting down the economy and, and, and locking people down. Um, two different reports on remdesivir in particular, which was a, not something that was uh, that was good. Where Fauci and Collins are sending each other's emails, being like, "We got to take down these scientists at at at, at Oxford and at, at at Harvard and at Princeton who are saying that this treatment doesn't work. We got to do a te- we got to take them down." And then, oh, I did this interview in in Wired where I debunked it. It's like this is not how it's supposed to be done, right? Um, that's not how and and it's so nakedly political. Um, I don't know. Even with with, with the AIDS stuff, it, it seems like there, there was such an opportunity for control, um, and it was taken and 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 uncritically. And, and what I keep going back to is like what happened to you know American liberals, American Democrats' opinion of the pharmaceutical industry compared to the way that all other big businesses are viewed. Um, and there's just such a, a disconnect um, over the amount of money on treatments that may or may not work and when generics are available, why they're not prescribed, you know, leading into stuff like the opiate crisis, which was most certainly preventable if folks were doing their job and paying attention. Um, but there's so much money to be made and, and uh, public that um, 
definitely doesn't have their eyes open on, on to what's going on and when opportunities like COVID come along to, well, we're going to have a, a vaccine and a captive, a group of 350 million people that were without that we can give it to again and again and again, and we can hide data and we can say everybody needs it the exact same. Uh, and we can not work on therapeutics because this is, uh, 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 this is the way to go. Um, it's bad. At, at least I think most people after reading the book and thinking about this, hopefully could come to the conclusion that there has to be a lot more transparency in how business is done, the relationship between government agencies and the pharmaceutical companies, which really there doesn't even seem to be a blurring of the line it's essentially the same thing right it's the same pot of money and it's the same people on both ends that revolve between you know agency and private company um it's even if no, they're totally... this wasn't corrupted it's so corruptible the way that it is set up that it's got to be blown up well listen i certainly don't begrudge you offering uh like a positive vision or things that could be done. But I definitely uh, am like a little bit more pessimistic. Like I do think RFK does a really good job of showing – I mean first of all the point you just made, like where is the difference – what is the difference between uh, sort of like public health and the pharmaceutical companies themselves? I think we're seeing this with like social media and other industries now. But I actually think pharma is a good instance where like – there are a bunch of public health jobs that are essentially just like advocate and coordinator for pharma inside the government. And they're like a way that they're linked uh, that's really uncomfortable. And RFK emphasizes like the corruption that's at play and making that happen, like the financial corruption. But I actually think it's sort of in the interest of these kind of industries to be directly coordinating with the government, even if they can't. And, like, once the government chooses a policy, especially if that policy relies on the the pharma company delivering something, it's like you don't even need at that point, like, a monetary incentive um, to have them sort of colluding. And I I just think the reason I would recommend the book to people, even though I think RFK is is not always discerning with his, his sources or the things he brings up, is, like, I do think these types of people, like figures like Fauci are sort of like a novel thing in American governance and like uniquely powerful people. Like when you're when you're in a technical profession where you sort of have an understanding of issues that, again, the average member of public or, or Congress won't have, uh, a lot of what you do financially and in terms of, of guiding like resources one place or another is not, even if it's on record, it's not really subject to s- public scrutiny because you have this weird veneer of like being a doctor and being in public service uh you know like maybe 50 years ago we would have said if if some general like funneled money to i don't know uh lockheed like maybe the public attitude would be like well he's a patriot don't question why he's doing that obviously that went away a long time ago but it seems like with certain industries like public health we still have that attitude where we're like you know he's the highest i think rfk mentions in the book like Fauci is the highest paid public official in the history of the American government. Yeah. But it's there's still like this very naive thing of like, well, why would he do anything bad? And it's like, well, lots of reasons. But I again, I think like technical expertise at the head of an agency that coordinates uh, and, and sort of has goals in common with 
a private enterprise is like the most dangerous and unevaluated like source of power uh, in this sprawling government we have. And this the book is like a great case study of that. It's a great case study of that and it too, and it also it's it's a it's it to to speak off to his point of the the presidential campaign, which as he describes it, is the corrupt merger of political and corporate power. And so, if you are somebody who believes from the thesis of this book that our public health agencies, NIH, CDC, HHS, are, uh, are are irredeemably linked and controlled by the pharmaceutical company, then we've got we've got an issue here, right? And 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 it's the same for it's this sort of worldview that goes to all of these different government departments where he thinks these uh, bureaucrats are much too powerful. If he thinks that you know DoD is uh, is captured, right? Is agency captured by the military industrial complex. The Department of Agriculture, you know, USDA, captured uh, by Monsanto and other big uh, ag companies. Um, Homeland Security, right? Captive to, you know, security and, 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 uh, uh, and, and military uh, interests. The Department of Commerce, right? Is owned by the uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce. There's a revolving door between them. The Environmental Protection Agency with... Uh, 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 with fossil fuels and, and big oil in particular, that his central thesis of his campaign is these are captured and they all need to be essentially destroyed. And um, I don't know what comes after that destruction comes, but um, that, and, and by the way, it, it goes into like Americans' distrust of institutions, right? Because you see every government agency has the same issue where on either side, like the Department of Justice, where is it now, right? What, what's going on at DOJ? Is it just, a, it, are, are they being the president's lawyer now? Like, I don't think so. But in, in, in the way that every issue is framed now, it seems politically at least very smart to take this sort of hatchet to the American government and say, all of the agencies that that are being led by professionals are not actually led in your interest or led in big businesses interest to sell you more stuff you don't need and to take money out of your pockets and give it to people richer than you are yeah i think i think that's all very well said um i don't want to i don't want to cut this short but i like that sort of as a an ending note like a pitch I think we made a little pitch for the book and you sort of just made a pitch for for what RFK is is aligning himself as a as a figure. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I appreciate it. I wanted to have this conversation for a while. I'd be really um, you know, assuming that the things we've talked about that we're right or that 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 I'm right about um, you know, come in January if this is a if this is a three-person race and uh, just sort of seeing how this shakes out like I'm absolutely fascinated to see how both the Republican establishment, the far right and corporate media is going to react to what's coming October 9th, which is this which is this announcement, the narrative switch of this guy, this guy is a pain in, in, in Biden's side and or he's embarrassing Biden to we've got a huge problem on our hands that makes everything that we thought about this election nothing is the same anymore. Um, I'm just really interested to see like in these next eight weeks, like when we come back in the new year, like what does this look like? Cause I, I don't think I'm wrong that things are going to be way different. Well, yeah, I, I give a lot of credence to your theory. So absolutely. If, if in January or February, uh, RFK is, 
is still uh, a significant figure in this fight and and sort of the Trump people have taken on board uh, that he's a threat to them in particular, we'll have to have you back to talk about it again. Yeah, and, you know, hopefully he'll be alive. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully all three guys will be alive, let's say, <laughs> on the record. All right, thanks, Ian. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right, later.